give you praise. Lord, you are worthy. Jesus, you are worthy, Lord. Oh, hallelujah. Hallelujah. Amen. The evidence of your love is that you're here on a Wednesday night when we have more excuses than any other time of the week to be not to be at the house of God, but you're here tonight. Amen. Because you love the Lord. Committed to living for Him. Amen. Glad to be in the house of the Lord tonight. Excited to get into the Word of the Lord tonight. Uh, you may be seated. For the past two weekends, Pastor has been preaching on the subject of the Word of God. In fact, last Sunday was to buy the truth. Amen. And we need the Word of God. We need the truth. We need the truth pro proclaimed. Amen. Without the truth, without his word, amen, we're, we're lost. We're, we're in, in the dark without any ability to know where to go or what to do. But I'm thankful for his word, and I'm thankful for the opportunity to share his word with you tonight as we get into the word of the Lord here tonight. Um, we are continuing on the series that a pastor began last week, uh, the series on Jesus responds to faith. Jesus responds to faith. Tonight's study tonight will be on the mighty God in Christ. This is the second in our series, um, the mighty God in Christ. Before we get into the word, I'd like to just say a word of prayer, and then we'll dive right into the word of God. Lord Jesus, we thank you, Lord, for this opportunity. Lord, to Share your word with the people of God. We pray, God, that your anointing would be upon this speaker, Lord. Your anointing is already on your word. We ask you, Lord, that you would bless this Bible study here tonight. May we walk away with nuggets of truth, Lord, that will help feed us spiritually and, and sustain us, Lord, throughout the remainder of this week, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Tonight's Scripture that we're going to read comes from John chapter 3. That's what Pastor taught on last week was John chapter 3 as well. This is a little bit later in the chapter. I'm going to read through the portion of Scripture that we're going to cover, and that's in John chapter 3, verses 22 through 36. Um, so you can remain seated. I, I'm going to read through that, and then we'll get right into the lesson here tonight. Beginning at verse number 22. It says, after these things came Jesus and his disciples into the land of Judea, and there he tarried with them and baptized. And John also was baptizing in Anon near to Salem, because there was much water there, and they came and were baptized. For John was not yet cast into prison. Then there arose a question between some of John's disciples and the Jews about purifying. And they came unto John and said unto him, Rabbi, he that was with thee beyond Jordan, to whom thou bearest witness, behold, the same baptizeth, and all men come to him. John answered and said, A man can receive nothing except it be given him from heaven. Ye yourselves bear me witness that I said, 
I am not the Christ, but that I am sent before him. He that hath the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom, which standeth and heareth him, rejoiceth greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. This my joy, therefore, is fulfilled. He must increase, but I must decrease. He that cometh from above is above all. He that is of the earth is earthly, and speaketh of the earth. He that cometh from heaven is above all. And what he hath seen and heard, that he testifieth, and no man receiveth his testimony. He that hath received his testimony hath set to his seal that God is true. Verse 34, For he whom God hath sent speaketh the words of God, for God giveth not the Spirit by measure unto him. The Father loveth the Son, and hath given all things into his hand. And our focus verse tonight, verse 36, He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life, and he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. Read that one more time, our focus verse, verse 36 of John chapter 3. He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life, and he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. Amen. How many know that the mighty God is in Christ? Amen. Reconciling the world unto himself, we know that he is God in the flesh. Amen. God robed himself in flesh and came to man in the form of the man Jesus. And tonight we're going to talk a little bit more about him and the ministry of John the Baptist. In his historical novel, The Virtues of War, author Stephen Pressfield recounts a fictional meeting between Alexander the Great and a philosopher. Alexander the Great had conquered the then-known world and was a powerful leader and was feared by countless subjects. Pressfield posed the famous emperor encountered a philosopher on a riverbank. The two men engaged in an argument over who had the right to proceed across the river first. One of Alexander the Great's men exclaimed, This man has conquered the world. What have you done? The philosopher replied, I have conquered the need to conquer the world. Like Alexander the Great, it's easy for us, even as followers of Christ, to become intoxicated with pride and ego. It's not just something that we see in the world, but it is something that we see in the church. It is easy to be intoxicated with pride and ego. In fact, pride is, seems to be even more prevalent in our society. In fact, some even use it as a, as a badge of honor when they talk of their pride. Uh, yet, we find that even in the church, we may even find ourselves engaged in spiritual pursuits, but for carnal reasons. Pastor has said this oftentimes that 
people say, I feel a ministry, I feel a call of God to be up in front of the church and preaching to everybody. But that can be a carnal pursuit if that's all you're looking for is to be the one holding the mic, speaking in front of everybody. Oftentimes, the right approach to any type of calling of God is to be a servant first and to give God your everything and let Him lead you to where He wants you to go. But God doesn't just take you from the pew and say, all right, now you're, now you're the one up there preaching and teaching right, uh, right out, out of the get-go, but God has a plan for you, and it starts with being a servant. And that's why in this church we celebrate those that have a servant's heart because that's what God wants for all of us. He wants us to have a servant's heart so that he can use us and work in us. John the Baptist is such an intriguing figure because he was willing to let his ministry be diminished so Jesus could be glorified. In John chapter 3, verse 30, we read, he summarized the goal of his ministry by saying, he must increase, but I must decrease. How many know that, how many want Jesus to increase in your life? Amen. But in order for Jesus to increase in our life, we got to decrease, right? He's got to be the focus of our life. And the natural thing is for us to be the focus of our life, right? It's all about us. I mean, and we see that more and more in the TikTok generation where everyone's, look at me, look at me, look what I'm doing, look at how special I am. And when it comes to living for God, it's about putting Him first, letting Him be the focus. We see it, you know, people give a homeless person a donut, pastors mentioned this, and they got to put it on TikTok so everyone can see them giving a homeless person a donut. Well, it's not about them, it should be about Jesus. It's not about them getting the recognition for the great deed that they did, but it should be Jesus getting the recognition. And so, just like John the Baptist, we want Jesus to increase, but we need to decrease so that he can be the focus. From that point forward, John the Baptist faded into the background while Jesus took center stage. John's words and actions testified that he had conquered the need to be in the spotlight. He chose the path of humility, knowing that it was the only way to God's kingdom and only, for his, only way for his kingdom to advance here on earth. I like the analogy of the sun and the moon. The Bible refers to the sun as the light and that the moon is the lesser light. But the reality is the moon itself doesn't, doesn't give off light. In fact, when we see the moon, if we see a full moon in the sky or any portion of the moon in the sky, what you're seeing is a reflection of the sun. It's the sun shining on that moon that you're seeing. It's not the sun giving its own light. And like the sun and moon relationship, we need to be like that with Jesus, that what people see is his light reflecting off of us, that we are a light to the world and that it is his light, not our light, that he's the focus, not us as the focus. Contrast John the Baptist's example with what we routinely see here in today's society. We've got the celebrity-crazed, spotlight-craving culture, as I mentioned earlier, the TikTok generation where everyone's got to get recognized. They, everyone wants their 
15 seconds of fame or 15 minutes of fame. They want to be recognized. And it seems like there's another video that goes viral every day. Why? Because everyone's clamoring for that moment of recognition and fame. But that's not what God has called us to do. God has not called us for us to be famous. But it's our attention needs to be turned to Him. And ultimately, our goal is that we turn others to Him, that we point others to Jesus. We see it in, in, even in sports. Many professional athletes attempt to hang on even past their prime, unwilling to accept that they're no longer capable of competing at an elite level. They seem more concerned about stroking their own ego than the success of their own team. Politicians do this too. We see this often. Politicians continue to seek re-election long after they no longer have the strength and energy to fulfill their duties of the office. In fact, we saw this just recently, last September, just, just a month and a half ago, uh, Senator Dianne Feinstein died at the age of 90. She was still a senator. She'd been serving for decades, but she never let go. She never passed, the gar- passed, passed on uh, the duties to somebody else, but held on. And, and we see that is because we live in, in, unfortunately, in a society that's so self-centered. It's all about me. It's what I want. And I want to be recognized. I want to be the person in the news. I want to be the person that people are talking about. People live, often live like her on yesterday's achievements, not considering whether they're able to adequately represent the needs of their constituents in the present. May God help us to put his kingdom first, to understand that our personal ambitions must be laid aside so Jesus Christ can be glorified. The spotlight will not not always shine our way. Sometimes we must be content to live and to minister in the shadows, confident in the knowledge that God's plan will be accomplished even when we don't get recognition. Amen? Amen. That's the the attitude of a servant. I'm going to serve even if I don't get recognized, even if nobody says, oh, what a great job you did. Maybe if nobody else even sees the work that you have done. But guess what? Somebody's keeping a tab. The Lord, the Lord knows what you've done and what you've done for his kingdom. It's not a matter of man or woman recognizing you, but it's a matter of him recognizing it. Ministry frequently involves many hardships and heartaches. Some of those difficulties arise when we lack the understanding of who God is, who we are, and ultimately what he has called us to do. When it came to ministry, John the Baptist seemed to have numerous advantages. Both Isaiah and Malachi announced centuries in advance that John would be the forerunner for Israel's Messiah. John's birth was foretold by an angel. In fact, that angel told his dad, Zacharias, what his name would be. He was raised by devout parents, and Jesus was one of his relatives. What a ministry pedigree. He should have had, he should have been famous and, and uh, you know, I mean, in, in understanding his background, that he would be somebody that would be in the limelight for many years to come. 
But Jesus would say of John in Matthew 11, verse 11, Among them that are born of women, there hath not risen a greater than John the Baptist. However, in the attitude of a servant, Jesus said, Notwithstanding, he is the least in the kingdom of he-, he that is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he, referring to John the Baptist. And so, even though John was the greatest, Jesus labeled him the greatest, yet he was even less than the least in the kingdom because that is the attitude one must take when when we are serving God and giving ourselves to the Lord and to the ministry, that it's not about us, it's about Him. None of these advantages or accolades prevented John from experiencing the ugly side of life and ministry. At one point, while languishing in prison, he questioned if he had even correctly identified the Messiah. We find that in, John, in Mark chapter 11, verse 3. In fact, the story of John the Baptist came to an abrupt and violent conclusion at the whims of a vengeful Herodias. You see, John the Baptist was beheaded. All of a sudden, not even expected, but it happened. It wasn't the outcome one would have expected for someone of John's stature. Here he had all these prophecies about him. He had all the background and and the knowledge, and, and he was the forerunner of Christ, and yet it wasn't about his ministry. It was about the Messiah. John was faithful through it all because he understood his place in the kingdom and the plan that God had for his life. It has been said that ministry is measured by three metrics, bodies, bucks, and buildings. Whether those are the best criteria or not, no pastor gets excited about seeing people leave the church. Most ministry leaders spend a great deal of time and effort trying to close the back door to keep people engaged in the local church and ultimately showing up week after week. You see, John the Baptist's ministry team apparently felt the same way. You see, when we read in John chapter 3, verse 26, his disciples brought him bad news. You see, people were leaving leaving him and joining the church across town. All men come to him, they reported. Him, in this case, of course, was Jesus. John was preaching to empty pews while Jesus was drawing standing room only crowds. As a prophet who was used to garnering attention and amassing an audience, you would think this news had to be hard for John to hear that nobody was interested in what he had to talk about anymore. Everyone was interested in Jesus. Yet, if John the Baptist was jealous or upset, about the change of these events, his response didn't betray his feelings. He told his disciples, a man can receive nothing except it be given him from heaven. You see, John accepted a reality that is difficult for most of us to grasp. God does not hold us accountable for the results. All he asks is that we fulfill his call. John the Baptist recognized that despite the exodus of people from his ministry to Jesus' ministry, he had fulfilled God's purpose. 
What was happening was God's will. Maybe not necessarily John's will. If it was as if John were saying to his followers, don't worry, everything is going as planned. John's response also reveals an understanding that his previous success in ministry had been a result of God's blessings and not his own human ability. And that's a lesson for all of us, that God's blessings and our success in ministry is not a result of something that we are really good at. That doesn't mean that we don't do things with excellence and give it our best effort in every time, every aspect of ministry that we're involved in. But at the end of the day, it's because of Him. It's because of Him and His anointing and His touch that ultimately we see the success that we experience in ministry. For a short time, God had given John an audience so he could announce Jesus as the Messiah. But once John had completed that assignment, attention shifted where it belonged. It belonged on Jesus. Another lesson that can be difficult to remember as we engage in ministry is that our job is to point people to the Messiah, not to be the Messiah. It's important that we're pointing people to Jesus. John the Baptist understood this truth as well, for he said, Ye yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I am sent, but that I am sent before him. Ministry becomes more manageable when we remember who we are and who we are not. Amen? Regardless of our anointing or our talent, one fact is certain. God did not call any of us to be the Savior of the world. Aren't you thankful for that? Amen. If you'd called me to be the Savior of the world, I think I'd fail at that miserably. And I'm thankful that He didn't call me and He didn't call you to be the Savior of the world. But He did call us to point people to the Savior of the world. Only Jesus is qualified to be the Savior of the world. He was the only sinless sacrifice. Our job continues to be to point people to Jesus and to let Him do what He can do. Because the reality is, the Bible tells us one plants, one waters, but God gives the increase. It's not our responsibility as I said earlier, for the results, it's our responsibility to heed the call and to do the work. God gives the increase. That's where the increase comes from. Former University of Notre Dame football player and motivational speaker Rudy Rudiger claimed, I have learned two things in my life. There is a God, and I am not Him. Most people chuckle when hearing this statement because in one way or another, many of us have tried to assume God's role and responsibility and quickly have learned that certain things only God is qualified to do. Trying to usurp God's duty is a sure way to make a mess of any situation. How many can testify that when we stepped in and said, God, I got it. <laughs> I don't need your help. I got it that we made a mess of situations that didn't need to be a mess. If we just left it in his hands, it would have been all right. But sometimes we feel the need 
to control things. And, and God's saying, if you just leave it in my hands, you don't have to worry. John the Baptist used the analogy of a wedding to convey the truth to his disciples. In a wedding ceremony, roles are clearly defined. He that hath the bride is the bridegroom. John told his followers that he that hath the bride is the bridegroom. The bride and the bridegroom are the focus of the wedding. Amen? Not anybody else. All eyes are on the bride and the bridegroom. Guests are expected to conduct themselves in a manner that does not attract undue attention. Outlandish behavior or attire is considered disrespectful at a wedding. And yet, we've probably all been at a wedding or a reception where a person or persons decides that they need some attention and likely dress or act in a way that draws attention to themselves. That is the opposite of the way we should uh, come in the kingdom of God is what we do is to point people to Jesus. So if we're drawing the inordinate attention to ourselves, we're taking attention away from the Lord. And so we want attention on the Lord. And so just like at a wedding, you wouldn't dress outlandishly to draw attention. The same thing is we don't in the kingdom of God try to draw attention to ourselves but we want to draw attention to him. Imagine the chaos and confusion that would ensue if one of the guests tried to usurp the groom's role. Depending on the severity of the transgression, the guest might actually be evicted from the premises. In the same manner, John said that there's only one bridegroom in God's kingdom, and that is Jesus. Jesus is the center of attention. The rest of the guests, John said, were present to celebrate him. The friend of the bridegroom, which standeth and heareth him, rejoiceth greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. John told his disciples in John chapter 3, verse 29, as the friend of the bridegroom, John was elated about the expansion of God's kingdom. Even though his personal star was waning, rather than being envious, John told his disciples, this my joy, therefore, is fulfilled. Got a quick video about the bridegroom, about the friend of the bridegroom. I'd like to speak a few moments about the concept of the friend of the bridegroom in the New Testament. It's a very important role. And uh, because customs have changed so much uh, over the last 20 centuries and we're in a different time and place, it might be difficult sometimes to come to grips with what John the Baptist is saying in, in John chapter 3 about the friend of the bridegroom. It sounds like a fairly casual term, a friend of the bridegroom. Um, we use the term friend loosely today. It can be just about anybody from a, a contact on Facebook to our very best friend. Uh, but when John the Baptist referred to himself as the friend of the bridegroom, he was speaking uh, of a title that was a very official position in ancient Near Eastern society. Um, the closest analogy I can come to the importance of the friend of the bridegroom in our culture is actually something like a real estate agent. A uh, real estate agent today represents a buyer 
uh, and a seller or buyer or a seller. And um, typically you don't want buyer and the seller making contact with each other because oftentimes deals fall apart that way. Uh, so you have a third person to represent the buyer and um, uh, to assure the seller that there is sufficient funds, that there is sufficient credit to be able to complete the transaction. In other words, that person is there to help uh, smooth the process, to make the process flow from one point to another without any hitches. Um, there's a lot of money involved in the real estate agent's uh, role. So very important, lots of trust invested in that role. So the friend of the bridegroom in ancient society, in ancient Near Eastern society, um, the Greek term for this role is philos to nymphu, an official role. And you're representing the bridegroom. Your job is to convince the bride's, the potential bride's family that the bridegroom is trustworthy. He's a good man. He has sufficient credit to be able to complete the marriage. He has the means to uh, finish the wedding ceremony. He has the means to take your daughter and to take care of her for the rest of, the, of her life. Um, and also, in uh, completing the transaction, there's uh, the assurance that the bridegroom will not tarnish the credibility of the bride's family. Uh, John the Baptist is referring to himself as the friend of the bridegroom because he is thinking of himself as arranging the marriage between the Messiah of Israel and Israel, his bride. He's there to assure Israel that this is the trustworthy one. This one is the Lamb of God. This is the one who is worthy of this bride. The long-awaited bridegroom has come back. Um, so John the Baptist says, uh, he that has the bride is the bridegroom. But the friend of the bridegroom, which standeth and heareth him, rejoices greatly to hear the bridegroom's voice. And this my joy is therefore fulfilled. This, my joy, is therefore fulfilled. The bridegroom has the bride. Uh, in other words, John the Baptist is saying, simply saying, the moment has arrived. I have been here preparing the way. I have told you about the one who is to come, and now he is here. The wedding needs to commence. The philos tunum few then backs out of the situation. The temptation was always for the friend of the bridegroom to develop a relationship himself with the bride. John the Baptist precisely does not want this kind of relationship. He does not want to attract people to himself. His job was always to point to another, to a greater. And so he says, at the end of calling himself the friend of the bridegroom, he says, I must decrease and he um, last thing I'll say on this subject, don't have time to go into all of it, but very interesting, take notice at the end of John's Gospel when Jesus is being interrogated by Pilate, that the Jewish people accuse Pilate of not being a friend of Caesar. Very, very important. These two are juxtaposed, the friend of the bridegroom and the friend of Caesar. God bless you.
Amen. Just like John's role was the friend of the bridegroom, we too serve in a similar role in, in life. We are a friend of the bridegroom. We are trying to bring others to be part of the bride ultimately. And, and we're, it is our job to compel others to come and be part of the bride for the bridegroom so that they too can be part of that number. Amen. In the last days. John described one distinct difference between Jesus and us. Jesus is above all, while we are of the earth. Jesus came from heaven and testified of what he had seen there. The rest of us can only witness from our limited perspective here on earth. All we've seen is, all we know is what we've been able to see and experience. But God is not limited by this earth, even by this universe, nor is he limited by time. And so he, his perspective is far above our perspective, or above all, as John put it. John was speaking directly about himself and contrasting his ministry with that of Jesus. Jesus later would testify of John, among them that are born of women, there hath not risen a greater than John the Baptist. But while John may have been a great prophet, he was still human. Jesus was a real human as well, but he was fully God. He that cometh from above is above all, is what John said. We also find in Colossians chapter 2, verse 9, for in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. All in one body, the fullness of God. As human creatures, we often we only offer earthly solutions to spiritual problems. But Jesus, the Son of God, who came down from heaven, is uniquely qualified to do what we cannot do. He alone can save us from our sins. He can deliver us out of earthly trouble and temptation. Only He can solve the problem that leaves us perplexed. He speaks the words of God for God giveth not the Spirit by measure unto him. He, has, he is God. He has the fullness of God. And so, therefore, he is God. He speaks the words of God. When comparing himself with Jesus, it is little wonder that John the Baptist said, He must increase, but I must decrease. When we compare ourselves with Jesus, it should leave us with a profound sense of humility. It also should spark a sense of gratitude. The Son of God, who possesses all things, has chosen to work through you and me. He could have done it on his own, but he's chosen us who are far less than him. He is above all, but he's chosen to work through us. And so that, in and of itself, should cause us to be humble and to be gra grateful for him choosing us to be the friend of the bridegroom. Paul later observed, we are laborers together with God. The God who possesses every resource in the universe has graciously invited us to be part of his team, to help him build his kingdom. But we bring nothing to the partnership, just ourselves. When Paul spoke of his work in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 10, 
He noted that it was all accomplished according to the grace of God, which was given unto us. John the Baptist possessed this attitude as well. You see, John recognized that Jesus was the only reason he had, was given this brief time at this stage in, in life. So it is with us that God has given us this time on earth to be able to compel others to come to Him, to point others to Him for that source of peace, for that source of love, for that source of contentment that can only be found in Jesus. Whatever assignment God has given us to fulfill, we must pursue it wholeheartedly while recognizing, as Jesus told His disciples in John chapter 15, verse 5, without me, ye can do nothing. But the converse is true as well. With Him, we can do anything. Amen? So I'm thankful that we've got the Lord on our side. Even though without Him we can't do anything, but with Him we can do anything. John was willing to accept his diminishing status because he knew Jesus was the true source of everlasting life. Like John, we must remember that Jesus is the source of salvation. Not our church or ministry, our gifts or personality, or anything else that we temporarily possess. You see, Jesus is the one and only source of salvation. That's why we need to point others to Him. Unlike the synoptic Gospels, John's account does not record John the Baptist's imprisonment or his beheading. In John's telling of the story, John the Baptist pointed the way to the light of the world and then disappeared from the scene. His final words were recorded in John chapter 3, verse 36. He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life, and he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. As John showed us throughout his gospel, everlasting life only comes from Jesus. If you want to live forever, Jesus is the only source for that. Jesus is God manifest in the, manifested in the flesh. All things have been given unto Jesus, is what John confessed. The only way we know God is through Jesus Christ. And the only way to attain eternal life is to put our faith in Jesus by believing and obeying His words. If we do not believe, as John stated, we will suffer eternal wrath. There is only one way to respond to John the Baptist's challenge. We must believe. We must put our faith in Jesus, the author of the eternal salvation, unto all them that obey Him. In the New Testament, belief is more than a mental assent to some set of facts. It involves a response of obedience to those facts. If we truly believe that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, then we will obey Christ's commands, including his command to be born of the water and of the Spirit. John the Baptist met an untimely end at the hands of the wicked King Herod and his evil wife, Herodias. But John's ministry could continue to influence his followers long after he was gone. In Acts chapter 19, 
we find the Apostle Paul was on his third missionary journey when he visited the city of Ephesus. While in Ephesus, he met and engaged in conversation with a dozen of John's disciples. What's intriguing about this conversation is John had been dead for 20 years, and yet his disciples were still carrying on his message. They li- his message lived on through these men. These disciples of John noted that they had been baptized according to John's teaching, but they apparently had missed one of the key emphases of John's ministry. You see, in Matthew chapter 3, verse 11, John had declared, I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance, but he that cometh after me, who is mightier than I, whose shoes I'm not worthy to bear, he shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. When Paul asked them whether they had been baptized with the Holy Spirit as John had promised, they replied, we have not so much as heard whether there be any Holy Ghost. Paul proceeded to give these disciples a short Bible study that bridged the gap between John the Baptist and Jesus. Paul noted that the purpose of John's ministry was to point his followers to the one which should come after him, that is, Christ Jesus. These men responded to Paul's teaching with faith and obedience and were rebaptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. How many here have been had to get rebaptized? I know I did. I got rebaptized. Amen. Because I want his name applied to me in the waters of baptism. Amen. It is interesting to note that although John had been gone for many years at this point, his humility and kingdom-mindedness continued to reflect in his followers. There is no record that these disciples of John argued with Paul or insisted their current level of understanding was sufficient. Like their teacher, they accepted the fact that Jesus was the supreme revelation of God, and they were willing to be rebaptized in his name. It is not surprising then that all 12 men received the Holy Ghost when Paul had laid his hands on them. If we want to experience all that God has prepared for us, we must humbly acknowledge that God has been fully revealed in Jesus Christ, and we must obey His gospel. Only then will we discover the everlasting life foretold by John the Baptist and experience and experienced by those who heard his words and followed Jesus. I want to experience that everlasting life that John taught on and what he led others to Jesus so that they could experience everlasting life. Aren't you thankful for the baptism in his name? Aren't you thankful for the infilling of his spirit? Amen. So we can experience eternal life too. Amen. Would you stand? Amen. I want to be a friend of the bridegroom. I want to be the one that's leading others to Jesus, pointing others to Jesus, to the bridegroom, that they too can be part of the bride and live an everlasting life like John preached. Amen. Why don't we pray and dismiss, O Lord Jesus. We thank you, Lord, for your word tonight. We thank you, Lord, for the insights of your word. Help us, Lord, to continue 
to delve into your word, Lord, in our personal time as we study and read and study your word and prayerfully do that, Lord, that we can grow in our relationship with you. We pray this, if you would go with each one throughout the remainder of this week and bring us here safely, Lord, on Sunday, amen, to worship together as saints of God in Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. You're dismissed in Jesus' name.